a revolutionary baby monitor is born. I want to introduce you to a brand new baby monitor, Massimo Stork. Massimo Stork Baby Monitor tracks health indicators so you can get to know your baby better. Track your baby's pulse rate, oxygen saturation, and skin temperature with the high-resolution video and clear two-way audio from the Stork app. While Massimo Stork Baby Monitor is new, Massimo Signal Extraction Technology, or SET to be exact, has been trusted in hospitals for over 25 years. In fact, 9 out of 10 top U.S. hospitals, as ranked in the 2022-2023 U.S. News & World Report, uses Massimo SET as their primary pulse oximetry technology. Now, this technology is available for families at home, empowering confident parenting. Go to Massimo Stork to learn more. Please remember, Mosmo Stork is not meant to be used as a medical device. Hi, everyone. I'm Deb Flaschenberg. Welcome to Yoga Birth Babies, a podcast produced by Prenatal Yoga Center. We will be diving into everything prenatal yoga, birth, and baby-related, hoping to inspire, educate, and empower you through your journey into motherhood. Thank you for listening. Hi, I'm Deb Flaschenberg. I'm your host of Yoga Birth Babies. And today we're going to have a conversation about policy. And you might be thinking, what do you mean policy? I'm talking hospital policy, care provider policy. You might end up talking to your care provider about some of your wishes and desires for your birth. And they may say, oh, that's against hospital policy or my care, my practice doesn't have that. That's against our policy. And it could be things from how long you can push, how, what position can you birth in? What, how long can you go without having an adduction? So there's many things that you might butt up against that you weren't even thinking of. And we're going to talk about how to have a non-confrontational conversation with your care provider so you can really have personalized care and not be held to policy. So to have this conversation, I have Melissa Chapel. Let me tell you a little bit about her. Melissa has worked with hundreds of expectant parents and students over the course of 25 years in the field of child birth as an internationally certified doula and doula trainer and certified midwife. She officially began her practice as an out-of-hospital CPN and state-licensed midwife in 2015. Melissa's also worked for a decade teaching childbirth education classes. She owns two birth centers with her business partner and friend, and together with their team, they bring about 100 babies into the world every year. It is really a fantastic conversation, and Melissa gives gives you tools to talk with your care provider to make sure that you are not being stuck to certain policies. And she talks about how to make sure that the hospital is actually looking at evidence-based information and not old antiquated ideas and policies. So I think you're very much going to enjoy that. Now, before we get to that conversation, we're changing things up here in New York City at PYC. So I'm recording this during the summer. And right now we have decided to do some outdoor classes. So if you're in New York City and you are near the Upper West Side, we are having Central Park classes at Strawberry Fields. So you can check those out. We also have our in-studio classes, our online classes, our on-demand classes. So we have a lot to help you get your yoga on. Now we also have our teacher training. So at this point, we're going to keep it on 
online and in person. So if you can't travel, we've got it online. And if you do want to travel to New York City, we have it in person. And I have to tell you, it's been amazing having this online. We can confidently say we have people teaching the PYC methodology all over the world. We have someone in Thailand, in Belgium, in Switzerland, in France. I mean, it's amazing. In Costa Rica, up through many parts of Canada and throughout the US. So it is just my dream that this methodology that I've created to support new and expectant parents, it's being taught everywhere. And I'm really, really proud of that. So if you want to participate in that, check that out on our website at prenatalyogacenter.com. And then the last thing is while you're looking around on our website, go ahead and grab our downloadable. It's free. It's called Five Simple Solutions to the Most Common Pregnancy Pains. You can also absolutely use that for postpartum pains. So if you've got some aches and pains, I want to help you check that out. Okay. We're going to take a super quick break. When we come back, please enjoy my conversation with Melissa. A revolutionary baby monitor is born. I want to introduce you to a brand new baby monitor, Massimo Stork. Massimo Stork Baby Monitor tracks health indicators so you can get to know your baby better. Track your baby's pulse rate, oxygen saturation, and skin temperature with the high-resolution video and clear two-way audio from the Stork app. While Massimo Stork Baby Monitor is new, Massimo Signal Extraction Technology, or set to be exact, has been trusted in hospitals for over 25 years. In fact, 9 out of 10 top U.S. hospitals, as ranked in the 2022-2023 U.S. News & World Report, uses Massimo Set as their primary pulse oximetry technology. Now, this technology is available for families at home, empowering confident parenting. Go to Massimo Stork to learn more. Please remember, Mosmo Stork is not meant to be used as a medical device. Melissa, I am so excited to speak with you. How are you? I am so well. How are you? Thank you so much for having me on. (laughs) Oh my gosh, absolutely. So let's give a little context to how this conversation even got started. So it was from some reel I did where I added, I think it was talking about, oh, it was about birth position, about passenger and power. Uh And I said there needs to be a third P position because that's something we take into consideration on how baby drops and rotates and and hopefully gets born vaginally. And you said, what about the fourth P being policy? And I was like, yes, yes, yes. Then I wanted to talk about it. So here we are. Yeah. I'm so excited. I'm so, so excited. All right. so, So yeah. Yeah, no, go ahead. I was going to say, I want to learn a little bit about you. (laughs) Where should I start? (laughs) With the thousand of jobs that you have. (laughs) Yes, the thousand jobs. So, um, so I, I am a midwife. I'm a certified professional midwife with NARM, the national registry. I think probably a lot of your listeners know what that is. So I work out of hospital. I own two birth centers with my lovely midwife partner and we do a lot of births. We, we do approximately a hundred births a year. And, um, we have, I, I also am a preceptor. So we have a lot of students right now who are all wonderful. They're all fabulous people. And I also have been a doula trainer for about 20 years and a childbirth educator. My son is 27 and I started teaching my first childbirth class just before his first birthday. 
So 26 years ago, I started teaching. I feel like a lot of your listeners were probably not born yet when I started (laughs) in this world of being, of being a birth worker, you know? Um, yeah, so, so I, and, and I've been a doula for about as long as well. I, I think I've been a doula for about, let's see, just over the trainer. So about 22 years. Wow. What led you to deciding on midwifery since you did have the background of a doula and a childbirth educator? So, yeah. So, so when I started teaching childbirth classes, I I actually had a really good experience in a military hospital with my first child. And I think I owe it all to my lovely childbirth educator and uh, just the things that she taught me. And she actually also came to my birth. So doulas weren't very much a thing back then, but she came to my birth and acted as a doula, even though that's not what we called her. And so I thought, you know, well, and my birth was not easy. I was in, I had a long, like a four, one of those four day labors. And I was in a military hospital, never had seen the same doctor. Like they had like 45 doctors or something. So it was really, it was a really crazy experience. And, and I kept, um, you know, they were like, your, your cervix is dilated. Like I, I came in for a visit and they're like, your cervix, you're like a four, four centimeters. So are you sure you haven't been in labor? And I, I said, Nope, haven't had, haven't been in labor. Cause I was just sure that they would force me to be into the hospital. And I actually had been having labor. So, um, it was, it was, it was kind of a crazy experience that I believe truthfully would have ended in a C-section, possibly forceps delivery had I not had the education I had and the support that I had. So then afterward, I was like, okay, the, the change for me was having this support person in this education. So I'm going to do this for other women because my mom had had all of her children were born by C-section. I always joke that when I was when I came out by C-section, I was really mad. And that's why I do the work that I do now. <laughs> I was like, Hey, wait a minute, put me back. This isn't the right way to do things. And so I never really had any education or knowledge about normal birth from my mom. Um, my mom has since done a lot of healing through my work, but, um, so I thought, you know, I'm going to, I really want to teach people how to do this, how to do this in a healthy way. And, so I became a childbirth educator and then I became a doula and then I became a doula trainer. And then I just thought, you know, the next, the next path, the next thing on the path is being a midwife, isn't it? So I I've actually been a single mom. I have four kids. I've been a single mom for a long, long time. I have a beautiful, amazing boyfriend. Um, but, but most of my children's lives as they were little or a single mom. So I didn't really have the capacity to do midwifery training. Otherwise, I think I would have done it a lot earlier. But I had some really amazing support step in in the form of my family. Um, and so when I was 40, I was finally able to go to midwifery school and become a midwife. <laughs> that's, a, so, that's a big step from doula to midwife. Yes. Yes. And, and actually, so... When I started midwifery, I had already attended approximately 600 births. So, so I had already been, you know, like, like deep in the trenches of birth, but, and, and many of those were home births and and out of hospital births at birth centers, but most of them were in the hospital. So I felt like I had a really, really good, um, baseline for how hospitals work before I started working out of the hospital. 
Um, so that has really informed my care as a midwife and as a doula trainer and as, oh, I don't teach childbirth classes anymore, (laughs) but, and, and as a doula, which, you know, I turn into a doula if we ever have to transfer somebody. So I still do occasionally work in the hospital as a doula, but, um, yeah, crazy jump, but I, yeah, it just seemed for me the next logical step. I think I know a lot of doulas. I think that I had a hot moment when I thought, Ooh, should I be, should I yeah. be a midwife? <laughs> well, it was because I, I was at a precipitous birth where I had yes. talked to my client and she's like, I'm fine. I was saying she was taking a yoga class. She's like, I'm just going to go home. I'm not feeling great. And she's like, I'm going to take a shower. And I'm like, okay, I'll just head over. And I was walking across <laughs> the park and it had been maybe 15 minutes. And when I got there with a sandwich in my hand, she was yes. crowning. And I was like, I just spoke with you. And she and her water broke in the shower. And I had actually just come back from studying a midwifery assistant course at the farm and I like washed my hand and support the, and support the perineum. And I'm like, that's all I remember to do. And luckily the EMT got there, but it was in that moment that I got a rush. And then I also thought, oh, it's a huge responsibility. I'll just, I'll stay in Tula. (laughs) I know. I have a, I have a question for you. I have to know what you did with your sandwich. I dropped you, it. I dropped it. Right? Right? I, because I know, I knew you were going to say that because I've been in that situation before where you're like, everything just falls out of your I hands and you go it. rush to catch I the baby, right? Yeah. I could still, I mean, I shut my eyes and I still remember from the front door to the bathroom and then seeing her on the ground and I dropped it and I washed my hands because something oh in my, my head's gosh. like, wash your hands. Um, you we were, we were had in it in your mind to wash your hands? I did. I did because if I was holding a sandwich and I was going to... So that is how that story goes. But all right, so let's talk about policy because I'm really intrigued. Yeah. So So something that I think a lot of your listeners might not know that I would love to talk about is um, there are actually a lot of P's and and I I am not positive, but I want to say her name just in case because I kind of think that Penny Simpkin who's the, one of the founders of Dona International, one of the doula organizations, I think that she may have been the first person to come up with the peas, but I'm not positive about that. Oh. Um, but so, so there, there, many people have thrown around the idea of peas and they've added their own and taken away some. So the, the ones that I always heard about, and I'm pretty sure I learned it from Penny Simkin, even if she's not the originator of it, um, I actually, side note, was trained by Penny Simpkin to be a doula trainer. So I feel like pretty amazing about that. <laughs> um, yeah, I think she's amazing. I did a podcast yeah. with her and I, I, did. I didn't, so I was such wonderful. a dork. I'm like, you're like my John Lennon no, of the birth world. Right? And I, I, know. I actually yeah. said that. I actually, <laughs> oh, I love that. And she's so like quiet and humble. I'm sure she gets that all the time and she probably just doesn't know what to say to it. But, um, yeah, so, so the six that I, I actually long, long ago used to teach about posterior babies and how we, what we can do as doulas to turn posterior babies. And I haven't given that talk for years and years, but I did talk about the six P's. And then I want to talk about four other P's just really quickly. I'll sure. say this because I know you want to specifically talk about policy. The, the six P's that I think if you know about the P's that you may have heard are um, powers, passageway, passenger, which I think you had talked about two of those mm-hmm. on your reel and then position. Um, and, and I have heard some people say placenta, um, and that actually can play a role. We do know through research that women who have an anterior, 
anterior placenta that occasionally, well, that more often their babies will turn to a posterior position. Mm -hmm. And I'm sure that that's to protect the placenta um, until labor. So it can play a role. And then psyche. And then four others that I've heard um, have to do more with the providers and the support people. And that's patience, persistence, practice, and pain relief. And I think that those ones are really important as well. But the one that I haven't really seen anywhere, which is the one that I commented on on your reel, is the policy. And I think that, you know, some of those P's that I already said, I mean, all of those things can play into policy, right? You could have a provider that says when people have an anterior placenta, we do not allow you to use rebozo or we don't allow you to push in this way or we don't allow... Um, you to have belly massage, you know, like some traditions will do belly massage. So you, that would be an example of how that could fit into there. Or you could say, or, or, you know, we know a lot of people who say, if you, if your baby's in a breech position, our policy is that we're, that we don't deliver your baby or that we have to deliver by C-section. So I believe that every single one of the P's, no matter how many you've heard of or haven't heard of, they can all fit into policy and be influenced by policy in one way or or another. I'm so Um, glad you brought that up. Thank you. I hadn't really (laughs) considered all that. So say them again. So you have the six and then the four you added. Yes. So the, so the first six have to do with the, with the, the client and her baby. So the woman and the fetus powers passageway, passenger position. And when we say position, we mean of the baby, but that could also be the mom's position. Um, and I should say, I, I sometimes say people as well. I always make the disclaimer that I serve everybody who wants to have a baby in all types of families. Um, I, a lot of times just use woman for ease, um, so that people don't get confused. So I'll use the the word woman here, but, um, powers, passageway, passenger position, placenta, and psyche. And then the other four that we could add on to that have to do with the provider and support people. And those are patience, persistence, practice, and pain relief. Mm. So, and practice doesn't mean, uh, like the client practicing. It means what does your, what are your practice protocols? So like in my, in my practice, I have my partner and myself. We have our own separate businesses, but we also own a birth center where we have three midwives in our employee and that birth center has its specific policies and practice protocols as well. So you could have like, for me, I would love to be able to catch breech babies in my practice, but my licensure doesn't allow me to do that. And so I, in my practice protocols, I cannot, I don't deliver breech babies. I have to transfer someone with a breech delivery that we have, or breech baby, which we haven't been able to turn externally. We have to transfer them to a midwife who will deliver breech or for, to the hospital, to a provider who almost always does cesarean, cesarean, as you know. But side note, the really important thing here is that we always let it, we always let the client choose, right? We always give the client options and let her decide what she wants to do. Um, let's start to talk about this is, I'm really excited about this. So I might even kind of scrap a lot of the questions and go with, yeah, go for it. I'm, (laughs) I'm ready. Bring it on. (laughs) Can you talk about how those now 10 P's 
may influence, as you started to talk about, say, in your birth center, how Mm -hmm. those 10Ps may influence policy and then how the birthing person works with that because they may feel limitations. Yes, of course. So one of the big things that I want to say right here is when we talk about policy in any setting, whether it's home, hospital, birth center, almost always the policy is influenced by the money. So, so when we, when we talk practice protocols, that's influenced by research evidence, my own experience as a midwife, what the client wants. Um, there, there are three tiers to, or three sides of the triangle for evidence-based care. And I think a lot of people don't don't know what the third part of the triangle is. And we can talk about that in a minute, but we, when, when we say policy, I think that hospitals are much more influenced by policy because they're such big business, right? And and I and I have to say I'm very in deep gratitude that we have hospitals. I work in developing countries where we don't have hospitals or where we do, but people are put in hospital prison. I mean, it's just just horrible things happen. So I'm very grateful for the for the doctors in hospitals and things that we have here, you know, if we if we end up needing those things. But the fact remains that those institutions are big business who are influenced by policies because policies play into how the business model looks. I am an entrepreneur. I own five businesses. I get business. Like I get the bottom line. I understand why people do what they do, but I also own a couple birth centers, right? And my, my policies around money do not ever influence my care for a person unless that person has decided that they're not going to pay their bill anymore or something. And then I say, I'm sorry, I can't be your midwife. But as far as like actual practice protocols, I don't have any policies that affect my practice protocols. Does that make sense? It does. So my, so my policies would have more to do with, um, okay, you can call the office line from nine to five. It's a policy that you can't call me after five unless you, are in labor or have an emergency. Um, another policy that I have is that your payment has to be paid in full by 36 weeks. Another policy I have is that you have to treat my employees with respect. You know, like it, it has a lot more to do with the running of the business than it has to do with my actual practice protocols. So, so in, in the hospital, for example, I know you asked me to speak to my, my birth center specifically, but, but I just want to use an example from the hospital really quickly. So if I was, let's say that I was with a client, I'm a doula, I'm with a client in the hospital and they say our policy is that is that if your water has been broken for this long, we have to give you Pitocin and get your baby out. Is that research-based? Not really. I mean, if you really look at the research and you know, you, you know that someone's water can be broken if they're not GBS positive for a while and as long as we're really watching over the person, that after a certain point, like maybe after... Well, not maybe, but for sure we know that research shows that after 18 hours that the risks for infection go up. So what about that first 18 hours? Well, most, not most, but many hospitals have a policy that baby has to be out after 12 hours. Why do they have that policy? Is it research-based? Does it have to do really with like what a practice protocol should look like? No, not really. It It's more to do with the policy of getting the person in and getting the person out so we can fill another bed with another client, another patient, right? So, so 
Are there policies that have to do with practice protocols? Yeah, there probably are a few. Like, like my licensure could be considered a policy. Like, like I could say we have a policy at this birth center that we don't deliver breech babies because my licensure doesn't allow that. Right. So my practice protocol also has to say that. So yes, policy can influence my practice protocol, but but again, policy has a lot more to do with the business side of things than it has to do with actual research and evidence-based care. Yep, that makes a lot of sense. So given that I'd say the majority, if not almost all of our listeners are probably birthing at a hospital, maybe a birth mm-hmm. center, maybe a few yes. home births. Yes. <laughs> what policies do you think someone may but against that will impact their pregnancy and birth. So this can also be care yes. provider policies. Yes. Yes. So I think, um, for birth, I, I'll talk about it a little bit backwards because it's a bunch jumped to my mind for birth. But I think the number one thing that I think of for birth is timing. Mm-hmm. And that can be timing of how long the labor is and also timing of when somebody goes into labor. So I think, you know, as a, as a midwife, you know, where I've had, I have done births where I have, I mean, I have done months in my practice where I've had 24 births a month, 18 births a month, and it's just been where you don't have time to do laundry, you don't have time to talk to your kids, you don't have time to fill your car with gas, you don't have time to take your garbage out. Like you're literally eating, drinking, sleeping, breathing birth constantly. So so as a as a midwife, I've been able to really develop some compassion and empathy for our hospital providers. I know a lot of people get really mad at OBs for the induction rates that we have in the United States. But when you look at what they have to do in order to cover their overhead costs and pay their malpractice insurance and keep some semblance of a, of a family life, it's, it's insanity. It's insanity. So I understand why doctors induce people so very often. And, but, but it's, but it's not evidence-based care that has to do with policy. Like my policy says that I induce everybody at 39 weeks, because if I do that, that ensures that I get people in and out. It ensures that most of my babies are born between nine to five, Monday through Friday. It ensures that my holidays are freed up. It ensures that my weekends are freed up and it ensures that this baby gets in and out and I can bring the next patient in to fill up that money slot. If for lack of a better phrase. Mm -hmm. (laughs) So I, so I think the number one thing is time. So I think people are going to be butting up against, and I'm sure all your listeners are maybe at home nodding their heads. Yep. The induction thing, like every woman now that I know, almost every woman, I'd say the majority, because I can't, you know, speak in absolutes here. Almost every woman I know now who goes to the hospital to give birth is given an induction date. Hardly anybody is allowed to let their bodies go into labor on their own now. And that has, people will tell you till they're blue in the face that it has to do with research, but it doesn't. It has strictly to do with policy. I hear thrown around all the time, well, the the stillbirth rate doubles. Well, the stillbirth rate is, you know, I'm making up numbers here. I don't know what it is, but if you say, if a stillbirth rate is 0.01% and you say it doubles, then that's still very, very low, right? So, but we use scare tax tactics like that when we induce women by saying, hey, the reason we're inducing you is to prevent stillbirth. Um, evidence-based birth did an art, did a little session for members on 
stillbirth and they found that you would have to induce something like, I don't know the exact number. I don't want to get it wrong, but, but something like 1200 women at 39 weeks in order to save one baby. And what is happening to all those people who are being induced, you know? So, so when you really like peel, peel back all the layers, the real reason that we're inducing people is because it makes sense from a business perspective. I also, so, when you were saying, talking about time, I also started to think about pushing because that's something yes. I came across as a doula a lot. Yes. And just we had to in work. general. Yeah. It was, I found the hospitals in New York had pretty strict three hour rule, even though ACOG mm-hmm. was saying mm-hmm. that's not actually the case. And we yeah. would have to negotiate, which is never yes. good for one's, you know, no, confidence. not when you're in the middle no. of pushing. Are you kidding me? So I, I, I agree about the timing, the timing of how long can someone labor? How long can they have their water broken? How long, when do they need mm-hmm. to be induced? But then also pushing, cause that's just going to create more tension and that's not yeah. what we need. And also it's- how long can you be in labor? Yeah. Like I, I recently had a client who had prodromal labor for three days and we talked a lot during that three days about honoring her body. And this is what your body needs to do. And there's this whole backstory. I haven't asked her permission to share her story yet, so I won't share it here, but, but, um, but that part's big enough that I can say, cause you know, we have lots and lots of clients where, you know, if she, if that woman would have been in the hospital, absolutely. She would have gotten oh, I would have augmented had a with Pitocin. Absolutely. I had yes, 42 right? hours, yes. five hours yes. of pushing. I 100%, yes. oh, my word. <laughs> I 100% would have had wow. my pelvic floor wow. might've been happier, but, um, yes, right. <laughs> <laughs> but absolutely his head yeah. is asynclitic. We needed yes. him to, to change. I would have been a C-section, not because yeah. anyone's heart rate, because I asked every contraction. Exactly. My exactly. blood pressure was great. My baby's mm-hmm. heart rate never had a problem, but because mm-hmm. of the time, yes, it would have been a C-section. Yeah. And there's no evidence to show that if we, if we, if a baby's looking good and a mom is looking good, that a C-section is going to make anybody any healthier. Right, so, and in fact, it will make people less healthy. <laughs> so I want to take a break. When we come back, knowing that there are these policies in place and not all of it's evidence-based, and as just said, it doesn't necessarily have to do with the parent or the baby, what are yeah. some ways in which somebody can advocate before they're in the situation so that their care provider and them have more of an understanding? So we're going to get to that question. We'll be right back. This episode is brought to you by JLL. Get an insider view into the world of commercial real estate with JLL's podcast, Trends and Insights, the Future of Commercial Real Estate. Whether you're curious about making cities more sustainable, the evolution of office space, or AI opportunities, this podcast will help keep you a step ahead. Tune in for candid conversations with business leaders about the biggest trends impacting how we live, work, and play. Subscribe to Trends and Insights now at jll.com slash podcast. Waiting on a tax return? Hopefully it ends up in your hands. Fraudulent tax returns due to identity theft increased by 30% in 2023. If you're in a bind this tax season, LifeLock can help. Our U.S.-based restoration specialists are experts dedicated to helping solve your identity theft issues. And all LifeLock plans are backed by the Million Dollar Protection Package. So we'll reimburse you up to the limits of your plan if you lose money due to identity theft. Help protect your information this tax season with LifeLock. Save up to 25% your first year at LifeLock.com aware. 
All right. So that was a big question. So <laughs> yeah, no, but I'm like ready to jump on it. I'm All ready. Right, so Let's go. go. Yeah. We're back. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, this is great. Um, so I think the number one, and I know I keep saying number one, but remember I've been doing this for 26 years. So, so then, and I've attended over a thousand births and many of those in the hospital. The number one thing that I think that people make the mistake of doing is hiring a provider and then negotiating later. I think what needs to happen is you need to hire a provider first that Mm -hmm. you don't need to negotiate with. And there are beautiful, extraordinary evidence-based practicing OBs out there. I I know I I have them on, like, I have one who texts me, like, we, like, if I have a question, I can text him. Like, he's amazing. His C-section rate is 3%. So we know they exist, right? We know they're out there. That's what my C-section rate is. Like, he, like, he's, he's an extraordinary person, you know, and, and I can tell you that he lets people push for longer than three hours, you know? So I think that, I think that, that what people need to do is find a provider who supports those things rather than picking any old provider and then later trying to negotiate. I, I, I think that, you know, somebody was commenting on one of my, um, reels about, so sorry. I thought I lost you for a second. No, I'm here. Somebody was commenting on one of my reels about episiotomy and, you know, and I said, one of the best ways to prevent episiotomy is to choose a provider who doesn't routinely do episiotomy. Right. Cause they're talking about all these things that you can do, right? Like you can do this and you can do this and you can do perineal massage and you can make sure this happens and do this and use a cold compress and, and refuse and stay away from and don't. And I was like, what about also <laughs> just doing the easier thing of choosing a provider? We know research shows us that when you choose a provider who doesn't re- routinely do episiotomy, that your chances for getting episiotomy are much, 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 much lower. Right. So, so that's kind of where I always come back to is if I have, ha- I can't tell you how many people I had somebody transfer to me two years ago who was a week over her due date. She transferred to my care and she went another four or so days, had a really long labor, pushed for four hours, had a beautiful vaginal birth and was like running around town preaching about how amazing we were, you know? And I mean, she's the one who did all the work, (laughs) but I think people think that, no, I'm already in care and it's too late to switch and I can't switch. And human nature is that we get really, really scared to to try new things. And so we will stay in this place of what I like to call familiar discomfort. Mm -hmm. And when you're in familiar discomfort, it's familiar to you. So it feels safe to you, but that doesn't mean it's safe. It's a, it's a trick that our minds play on us because of the unknown. So like what if the unknown is safer is more unsafe, right? But if you find a provider who more, more, who lines up with your, ideas and values and desires for birth more than the current provider you're with, that discomfort is going to go away and you're going to be familiar with the situation. And no person should have to fight when they're in labor or in pregnancy for that matter. So what happens if someone has a provider that they are really aligned with, but 
the provider, and please correct me if I'm wrong, if they're in the hospital, the provider can't always make all the decisions. Some of it does fall on the hospital's policies, right? Yeah. So, so here's an interesting thing that a lot of people don't know. The provider, it at almost, in almost every case can supersede policy. So I had a, I, I'll use this example. I had a client once who, um, the, the hospital told her there's no way that you're allowed to have a water birth here. You can't do these things. And her provider said, well, we're going to do it anyway. (laughs) And, and I, providers are kind of the top hierarchy in the hospital system. So let's say like you've got administration, right? And they're the ones who set policy, but the providers are the actual people practicing. So the providers are, are a lot of the times the people who dictate what that policy is going to be. And a lot of times administration looks to the providers to say what that policy is going to be. So let's say you do have an amazing provider and they say, I'm so sorry, in this hospital, they don't allow this. Like, yes, they are up against the wall in some cases, but in many cases, they really can supersede administrative hospital policy. So I've had, um, I had to transfer somebody to a hospital um, and it, and I had, I went with her and it was right at the beginning of COVID. Um, she was bleeding too much. And so we had given her all of our medications, but we just really didn't want to keep her at the birth center in case she continued bleeding. She was conscious and healthy and kept saying, please don't take me. And I, you know, I don't, I was like, we're not going to mess around with your life right now. So we took her to the hospital. Um, my, my, me and my, um, assistant had to be with her just for, for reasons are very like, I can't really there it's, it would be a lot of like clinical detail for me to go into, but we had to be with her. Her was also with her. Um, and so, and they would never not allow anyone in the hospital at that time, but everyone kind of, as we got, you know, she got wheeled in and we were next to her, everyone kind of looked the other way because they knew that the situation required us to be there. So they waited until about an hour after, you know, everything was good. Mom was stable. I had given report to the doctor. We had had a really good talk. He was a very kind, wonderful OB, by the way. And they came in and after an hour and they said, oh, um, we just, we, we just remembered that we have this policy right now where like nobody can be in here, not even her husband, but they, but they, in that moment, they knew it was so important for us to be there and for her husband to be there that they all turned a blind eye and nobody got in trouble. So they had this like very strict policy. Like everyone has to be, you know, like covered in, um, not just masks, but like this was at the very beginning where you were like masks, goggles, head coverings, all we had was masks. Like we came in, you know, we came in, nobody had anything and everybody knew that it was for, to the, to the benefit of the patient for us to all be there. So they all just kind of ignored it until everything was fine and we didn't need to be there anymore. And then they're like, Oh, by the way. So I don't know if that's a good example, but that that's an example of how, you know, that the, the, the current situation, like no hospital administrator is, is going to say, Hey, you did this horrible thing. And so now you have this punitive result because you 
you like let the mom push for an extra half hour over policy. They're going to go, oh, well, this provider knows a lot more than we do as, as administrators. And this person felt that it was in the, the patient's best interest to let her, to have her push for an extra half an hour. Does it, I mean, that I, that I shouldn't, have, sense. Said, that I shouldn't have said no administrator is going to get, nobody's going to get in trouble because people for sure do have punitive action taken against them. But it, but the provider is really like at the top of the hierarchy. And a lot of people don't realize that. Yeah, and, I, actually and a lot of hosp- providers- I actually thought the hospital could supersede what the provider well, says. they, so they totally can, but they rarely do. Got it. So, yeah. So you have, so a lot of providers just do what they think is best or they do what a lot of providers will also do what they think is most convenient. Right. So you, so it, it really depends a lot on the provider, but, I, but also, I, I mean, I live in an area, um, that's a very urban area and we've got, um, a lot of very large hospitals in my area and they all have different policies. So I think that's another thing that, you know, when we're transferring somebody from a birth center birth to the hospital, there are hospitals that I refuse to go to because yeah. of their policies. I've actually, there's two doctors, my own doctor, um, and then a doctor I've worked with a bunch. My doctor first left one hospital because he actually said, so, uh, Mount Sinai has bought a couple hospitals here in New York, and he said that mm-hmm. he felt that he could not practice how he yes. wanted to. Yes. And then I have yes. another wonderful doctor that she stopped catching babies because she also felt that her hands were tied with what, how she wanted yes. to practice. So yes. what are some policies that you're seeing actively enforced that are not evidence-based, but they're still part of obstetrical culture. You're ready for the list? (laughs) I I am. Yes. Go for it. Yeah. So, so I think, um, our, you know, rupture of membranes. So when someone's water has broken, a lot of people just like, let's get this baby out in seconds, even though, you know, we know that research with the research shows that we can let people go for quite some time and give them time to start into labor. Um, induction of labor is another one. Um, I, I think, you know, the thing that I hear, I hear this all the time, your baby is nine pounds, 10 pounds. You can't deliver this baby. I deliver nine and 10 pound babies all the time, all the time. Like it's, it's a, it's a very normal thing. Like it's a very normal range for a baby to weigh, but you hear people all the time say, you can't do this. You're going to end up with a C-section. We have to induce this baby that you have. We have to induce you immediately. There's no research to show that inducing every single person at 39 weeks improves outcomes. In fact, there, and, and, and I know some of your listeners are probably going to be like, what about the arrive study? Yeah. If you, if you go listen to to the, what evidence-based birth has to say about the ARRIVE study, that's not what it said. It did not say that when people's babies are born at 39 weeks that things are safer. In fact, we know that babies end up in the NICU more often because they're, they didn't really get enough time. We know that... Um, it leads that induction leads to more cesarean. We know that cesarean leads to more death and infection and, and morbidity. So we, it's like, it doesn't work for someone to say, we're going to induce every single person to save one baby out of 1200, but then we're also going to do this. That It also raises the risk for these things that cause death and morbidity. Like it may, it doesn't make any sense. You can't say we're going to reduce this chance for death by raising this chance for death. 
you know? Yeah. No, so, they arrived study. It's, I feel like it's been hanging yeah, over its head rough. for several it's years now. Rough. Yeah. So when I first started this work 26 years ago, people were allowed to go two weeks over. It was a very normal thing in the hospitals for somebody to go two weeks over. And as time went on, you know, I, you know, it got down to where people were only allowed to go one week over and then people were only allowed to go to term. And now, and now most people I hear from who give birth in the hospital are scheduled for an induction at 39 weeks because of the arrived study. So, um, so that, so that one episiotomy, which I don't see done as much anymore, but I still see it done. And we have, have over 25 years of evidence. We knew 25 years ago that episiotomy, the only thing that it did was increase the chance for third and fourth degree tears, continuous fetal monitoring. We know, and we knew this 25 years ago, also that continuous fetal monitoring, the only thing it has been shown to do is to raise the risk for cesarean. It has, it does not improve outcomes. And there is, I could fill a room with the evidence for that one. It does not improve outcomes. The reason we do it is out of convenience. We don't have the staff to go in and monitor every single person intermittently. So that's why everybody's hooked to a monitor so that we can see all those monitors out in the nurse's station. Um, not allowing people to move in labor. <laughs> we know that that lengthens labor and we know that it increases chance for instrumental delivery and cesarean. Um, Let's see what else I could go on. Eating. <laughs> yes. Food. Oh my gosh. Okay. Literally eating and drinking is probably has like 60 years of evidence. Like that one goes even back even further than the other ones that I'm talking like about. The 40s. That's what it's, I believe. Yes. In the, I mean, yes. And it's been debunked because, you know, anesthesiologists yes. have you know, much more refined skills than I know. what they were back in the 40s. Yes. Well, and now, and we have like intubation, like we have technology that we didn't have back then. Um, they're, they're actually, I remember reading a book that you may know, um, called a woman, uh, the thinking woman's guide to, to Oh my birth. gosh. Yes. You know yes, yes. So yeah. And I actually that's interviewed so... Hensi Goer. You did. You're I so did. lucky. That's so, I that's know, so I, wonderful. I shot high and I'm like, yeah. And she was, yeah. I was very intimidated by her. That book oh, was, I thought uh, right? that book, yeah, I thought she's, actually that she book, is, she's intimidating. And then I read her follow up book. Oh, that yes. was, a, that was a tough read. Yes. And I always tell people, I'm like, it, I'm like, are you more science oriented? Cause if you're, if you're like, if you're not, you should read this book. If you really want to know like all the research and the science, read this Which one. <laughs> I, I love research. So I was yes, actually me speaking too. to me, but it was a tough yes. read. Yes. Yes. But, but you know, her book, even then when I think I read it like 20 years ago, even then she said, I went over, you know, the last 30 years or something. Uh, I don't remember the exact years, but it was a lot. It was decades of research or of, um, maternal deaths, not one of them was due to aspiration because of general anesthesia. So here we have these people like the way that I tell my clients, you know, the way that I describe it to them is if you were running a marathon and I told you, you couldn't drink or eat any water, I mean, drink, sorry, drink water or eat any food, what would happen to you? And they all look at me and they're like, well, I would for sure pass out like in the first three miles, you know? And I say, and, and I, I have people sometimes coming to us who have had hospital births and then they come to us and they of course have their list of questions like, do you do episiotomy? Do you do routine IV? And I just smile because they just have no idea, you know? <laughs> and it's fun to have that consult with them. Cause I say, nope, 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 nope. And they say, well, are you going to allow me to eat and drink? And what I usually say in response to that is actually, you're probably going to be kind of upset with me for trying to 
like give you a bite of a granola bar and, <laughs> and trying to make you drink. You're probably gonna be like, stop trying to give me food. <laughs> Cause I'm always like, no, we got to keep your energy up. Let's do yeah. this. Take one bite. Can you do one bite? Let's do one bite. Um, yeah. So it, yeah. So that one's a funny one so for me, but that's yeah, a long list. So we know that yeah. evidence-based <laughs> practice is not happening. So students, so people might be hearing this and then they may want to have a conversation with their care provider. How would you advise pregnant folks to non-confrontationally confront? So yes. they don't want to go in. Cause I really think like if they're going, if they've chosen to work with this care provider for whatever reason, and sometimes I recognize insurance doesn't allow as much choice. So yes, sometimes they're stuck. And that's an issue so, here as well. So totally. if yeah. they, if they are choosing to work with this care provider, they don't want to be confrontational because I think that can create some rifts. How can they have that conversation and work around some of these policies that we know are not evidence-based? Yeah. So, so will you remind me, I do want to talk about the three, the three sides of the evidence-based triangle, okay. but I'll answer your, I'll yes. answer your question first. And I do, I do want to just backtrack for just one quick second. When, when you, when you were talking about, um, how hospital administration, they really do play a big role in doctors' lives. I 100% agree with you on that. And, and when I, when I'm, when I'm talking about how doctors can supersede that, it's usually like, a case by case every once in a while, you know? So I, I agree with you. I didn't want anyone to think that I'm like, that I'm poor doctors out there like that girl, what, who does she think she is? <laughs> so I just wanted to clear that up that I definitely understand that doctors are really a lot of times held between a rock and a hard place with what they want to, how they want to practice and what their, what their contracts that they've signed say that they have to do. Um, so, you know, my, the number one thing I'm going to say, you could probably guess when in answer to your question about, you know, what do people do if they're working with a less than desirable provider? And that's really Get their only option. Yes, you knew it. <laughs> but that puts, yeah. so I'm going to say I have been, I don't practice as a doula anymore, but I, I did for many years and I felt like I was brought into situations like that where yes. I could advocate, yes. but doulas don't have a magic wand. So there's exactly. still, so let me it's tell still you, problematic. So, the, so let me tell you a couple things. Cause I teach advanced doula trainings on this and I, 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 I trained in a mindfulness-based stress reduction. And one of the things that we talk about in mindfulness-based stress reduction is nonviolent communication. And you've, I'm sure you've heard of nonviolent yes. communication. Um, but when it, so I, I have this whole section in my advanced doula training on how do you deescalate situations? How do you diffuse situations without taking the voice and power away from the parents? Right. And, and it's a, tr it's a tricky one and it's hard. But another thing that I say before I kind of give some ideas and examples of how, how you can do that as a doula, another thing that I, that I always say in my doula trainings is it is not my job to control things or to take away the experience from the person. So, you know, I can't tell you how many people I've had come to, to my practice and say, I had the literal worst experience with my first or my second baby and I'm done. I'm never doing it again. And they will move mountains to have a different experience. And, and I know like what you said, I, I don't expect everybody to be able to have the resources to move those mountains to have a different experience, but, um, but there are, there is financial help for people. You know, there, there are people who will do payment plans. There are Medicaid programs now who are paying for doulas, which is so awesome. In my state, there's not even anyone on the radar for that. And I'm like, yeah, let me just add that to my list. With my <laughs> five other things I'm doing. But, um, 
but there are a lot of people are, I mean, we're, we're starting to see, you know, now that doulas are, you know, people are finally starting to see the benefits of doulas and, and to the point where agencies, I mean, like government agencies like Medicaid are starting to see the value of providing people with doulas. And then also like we have a volunteer program at our birth center because a lot of people don't have that resource. And so there are a lot of resources out there that people don't know about that can, that can be helpful for choosing a different experience. But let's go back to what you were saying. If somebody doesn't have the ability to choose a different experience, I think the, the number one best thing they can do is hire a doula and, and then get as educated as possible because I have seen people who have had to go to it through the hospital system. They've had no other option but to go through the hospital system. And what they end up doing is they get so educated that they labor at home for as long as possible. And then they, the doula and the client to answer your question about doulas, I think the, the most work that we do with clients should be prenatally. It shouldn't be in the hospital. It should be prenatally and, and prenatally. That's when you start like realizing, you know, like figuring out what kind of birth do you want and what are we going to do in these different scenarios? Like, let's make a plan. And that's a big, big thing of mine that I do in my doula trainings and with my own clients is we're going to make a plan around this thing that could come up. And, you know, my clients, you know, they, sometimes they choose that different experiences still end up in a hospital setting that they didn't want to be in, you know, and they still have to face those things that you're talking about. Um, so as a doula, so the, so the first thing is get educated, stay home as long as possible, hire a doula, right? Those are like the number one things, um, that, uh, that the client, that clients can do patients and clients. The thing that I think doulas can do because doulas shouldn't, we're not police. We're not knights in shining armor, right? We're not supposed to stand there and hold a knife. I mean, a sword in front of the doctor and say, you shall not touch this patient. You know, like we can't, we're not, that's not our role. Our, right. Our role is to facilitate communication and to witness the experience. I'm actually writing a book on being a doula right now. And that's, that's the, the thread that runs through the whole thing is that, that we're a witness for this experience. And it's not always going to mean that this person ends up with a non-traumatic, beautiful birth experience or what they perceive as a beautiful birth experience. Right. But they're always going to have a witness to what they're going through. And I think when I teach my doula trainings, you know, I, I'm, I'm really big on like, here's how you can help your person find the voice. Here's how you can help your person ask questions. Here's how, um, you can, you can help to, diffuse a situation that's less than desirable. So there, and I go into a lot of that in my book, like a lot of detail into those different things in my book and my advanced doula trainings. It's like a, a lot to say here, but, but at, in my experience as a doula, I'll just give you like a couple tips. One of the best things that I've found, and this is going to sound so silly, but one of the best things I found that immediately diffuses situations and warms people up to me is to compliment them. So I'll have people, I, I, I would do birth where I would have people come in. They don't acknowledge me. They don't look me in the eye. They, you can tell that they have a distaste for me and I'll say, thank you so much for your help as they're leaving the room. And they look over at me and they're, eyes are, you know, popping out of their head. What did you just say? Thank you. Like I thought doulas hated us. And I think that that's a big misconception. And I think a lot of care providers think that, that we're here to fight. Like I've got my boxing gloves on, let's go. And that's not what a doula's role is. And so, and, and this is going to sound funny too, but I'll say stuff like, um, 
Like those are the coolest shoes. I'm looking for some, some, some like better shoes. Cause I'm on my feet a lot too. Like, can you tell me what brandles are and where you got those? And instantly you've humanized the person. So, so my number one tip for doulas is to humanize the people you're working with. And by doing that, you also humanize yourself, right? So you're not just two people ready to box in a boxing ring. You're people who both have to wear shoes that are comfortable. So if someone doesn't have a doula and they're just trying to have this conversation with their care provider, yeah, what so are I the think, ways they can speak to them? So I think, again, a lot, it comes to prenatally, right? Because when you're in labor, you don't have the wherewithal. You're in a vulnerable state when you're in labor, whether you want to be or not, you are. You're, you're naked. You're making noises that maybe you don't want to make. You maybe have to cry a little bit. You know, like it's a very vulnerable state to be in, even though it's a very powerful state to be in. It's also a very vulnerable state to be in. So when you're, so my, my advice is to have those conversations before you go into labor and to, to discuss a birth plan. I don't, in my doula trainings and with my clients, we don't really do birth plans. We do like birth, we do like plans for birth, <laughs> you know, I like switch it around and we talk about our plans for birth. What are our plans for birth? This is my most desirable outcome. That said, you still get into a lot of scenarios where your doctor, you know, will say, yeah, I know that I agreed to that at our, at your prenatal visit, but things have changed. And that's where people get really stuck, right? But I, but one of the best tips that I have for people is, is that you can do is ask for more time or can we have some time to think about it? Because yeah. almost always, unless it's an emergency, which in an emergency, most people are going to be like, I trust you. That's why I chose you. Go for it. It's an emergency. But most people have time. To, if they ask for it. So let's say the doctor comes in and says, you know, I'm really not liking this labor super short or, or super long. I am going to break your water. Well, first of all, that person hasn't act, asked for consent. So the person can say, can I ask you a few questions first? And then they can ask questions. And hopefully they have enough education that they know what questions to ask. And, you know, I'm sure you've talked about on your podcast, the brain acronym. Yes. You know, right. So I'm, yeah. So, and if anyone doesn't know who's listening, just go look up the brain acronym for labor. So you, so people can learn that beforehand. They can take a little cheat sheet. I've had, I've literally had dads write on their hands questions to ask when they're in labor because they could to help them remember because they know they're going to also be in a vulnerable state. Um, so can we have more time? Can one of the tricks that I have done a lot as a doula is I've empowered people to say, could we have some time alone to think about it? Yeah. I and say, then, <laughs> can we have, can we pray on it? Um, cause I've yes, never had someone say no. Nobody wants to be there when someone's saying a prayer, they're like, what, wait, you're going to pray. Oh, yeah. No, I've I've had, can it. we no. pray on it? And is mom that. okay? Is baby okay? Can we have more time? I Those are my go too. But yeah, yes. can we pray on it? Just people like, yes. fine. I love and I'm that. Out of there. Use it. And a lot of times, like, like if it was sort of an emergency and they say, can we pray on it? It suddenly becomes not an emergency anymore. Right. Cause yeah. they're like, Oh, this is really important to these people. And, and I think, I think no matter what you believe, most people will, re- will respect when somebody says they would like to pray. On, on okay, something, I want right? to circle us back to, I have in my notes triangle that you wanted to yes, say something yes, yes. and then I'm going to yes. start to wrap us up. Okay, perfect. So the evidence-based care triangle, a lot of people don't know this. They think that evidence based care means looking at research and practicing based on the research. But there are two other sides of the triangle. And one side is the provider experience. So me as a midwife, let's say that I've done like, this is a funny thing because on Instagram, people who have had one baby like to get mad at me for saying something. And I'm like, look, look, I've been at thousands of births and you've, you've had a couple and your experience was different, but that doesn't mean that 
you can get mad at me for saying that this <laughs> for, you know, in my experience, this thing has happened, but, um, but my experience plays into the evidence-based care too, because maybe in my experience, I've seen something that I haven't learned in research or that research hasn't taken on yet. So, so my experience matters as a provider. And then the third piece of the triangle in evidence-based care, which is so, so important. It's the most important one is what does the client want? What is the client's culture? What are their beliefs? What works best for them? So I might have a, I might have a client come in and you know, we suggest a test or procedure that is evidence-based and, and also my side of the triangle, I see that it's been very helpful for me to use that test or procedure. And the client might say, absolutely not. This is, this does not fit in with my culture or preference. And then I can decide as a provider, whether I feel comfortable with that, but I still need to take that into consideration. So I I think a lot of people forget that that's the true definition of evidence-based care is those three parts of the triangle. And, and, and providers a lot of times don't take that third side into consideration. And it, you know, you and I, we're always putting, we always want the client to come first, right? We always want the family and the parents to come first, but, but that doesn't always happen. So right. I think it's a really important thing for people, especially providers who are listening to your podcast to remember that that component is something that we need to always have forefront at the forefront in our minds when we're making decisions with our clients, not for them. (laughs) This has been so amazing. We're going to take another break, but when we come back, as we start to wrap up, what is one final tip or piece of advice you'd like to offer new and expectant parents? We'll be right back. With lucky landslots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Okay, so we're back. So, oh, you have so much juicy information to chew on and for, (laughs) I just, I think it comes back to, I like this because people can then listen and think about how to have conversations ahead of time. So I'm really appreciative of everything you've offered, but what is one final thing you want to leave? I love so much that you asked me this question. So I think that a lot of people, a lot of providers, maybe their first go-to would be like education. Everyone should get educated. And that's important, right? And so, so, so important. But in doing this work for so many years and seeing so much loss on every level, especially in terms of like what I thought my birth was going to look like. And then I kind of lost a lot of what I thought it was going to look like. The number one piece of advice I have for people is to work on acceptance. Mm. You know, it's a very, it's a very Buddhist principle and it's a principle in, in many beliefs and cultures that acceptance, we cannot, no matter what we do, you can hire a doula, do all the education you want, hire the greatest provider who has thousands of five-star reviews, right? And, and, and it's still birth is always still an unknown. And it's one of the very few things in our lives in this modern day that is still an unknown. Even if we induce somebody or have a planned C-section, it's still unknown. There are still going to be components of it that we don't expect or know. And that acceptance, working on that acceptance of the outcome 
like get as prepared as you possibly can choose the best providers that you have within your resources, hire a doula. If you have that in, in, within your resources and then your next most important thing to do is work on accepting what the universe brings to you and how your birth goes. And I've noticed that people who work on acceptance, they have much less trauma with birth than those people who don't. And, and that, and that goes for someone who could have a beautiful birth experience and still be traumatized by it. And someone who has a terrible birth experience and not be traumatized by it because they worked so hard on letting go and allowing and accepting the outcome. I'm going to put in our show notes. So listeners check this out. Um, I did a wonderful podcast with someone named Nikki. She, she, she had, she he'd, and she works through, I'm totally blanking on the name. Um, birthing from within. I did a training yes. with them mm-hmm. and it was Love all it. about, it was really awesome. I think it was called crossing That's the so threshold cool. and it was a lot about processing your birth story. Yes. And letting and working through what the birth story was to process and, and what you said, accept and then let mm-hmm. it let it slip out of such a tight grip. So I'm yep. going to make sure that I put that in the show notes for people to take a listen to, because it oh, just really that. resonates beautifully with what you said. Yeah. And I, you know, I've done this for so long and that is the, the one threat, common thread I see through people who have experiences that, that they can view as healthy growth experiences rather than traumatic experiences. Mm. The common thread is that is, is that acceptance and of what will be, will be, even if I've done, you know, haven't done anything or have done everything, you know, to prepare because we still can't predict, right? Everyone thinks like I got a doula and a midwife, so my birth's going to be perfect. That's not that doesn't guarantee anything. Yeah. Yeah, (laughs) absolutely. Where can people find your work? So I'm most active on Instagram, which is songbird maternity. And, um, and that is where I post all of my training. Well, my website's on there as well, which is also songbird, maternity.com. And all my trainings are on there. Um, putting a lot more online trainings on, I do some of my trainings I do virtually, um, I do a lot of retreats. I'm doing a Costa Rica retreat this year and also um, a retreat in the mountains of Utah. So yeah, so all of that can be found on Instagram or on my website at songbirdmaternity.com. Oh, this was so great. Thank you so much for sharing your knowledge. I appreciate it. Oh, thank you. I, I really, truly, earnestly appreciate the opportunity <laughs> to. It's just been such a joy to talk with you and share. Thanks. This has been an episode of Yoga Birth Babies, produced by Prenatal Yoga Center. You can catch us on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and Periscope. I'm Deb Flaschenberg. Thanks for listening. Spin your passion into a business with Shopify and break sales records with the world's best converting checkout. Let's hear that one more time. The world's best converting checkout. Shopify's legendary checkout makes it easier for customers to shop on your website, across social media, and everywhere in between. Now that's music to your ears. Any way you spin it, you can be a smash hit with Shopify. Start your dollar a month trial today at shopify.com slash records.